0: Good morning, it is awesome to be with y'all today, and um, I could not be more excited to share in this word together that the Lord will give. Um, If you would turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20, we we will begin there. If you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 1250. John, chapter 20. So we've been studying in the gospel of John now for several weeks, and something Deborah has prioritized to mention each week is John's purpose. And as she's mentioned it, I've I've grabbed a hold of it, but she seems to be dead set to cement something in our minds, the understanding that the Lord has given her. Right, And when the Lord gives us something, we want to share it with others. It is the understanding of believing and what it truly means to believe. The word for believe shows up in John's gospel describing Jesus' ministry 98 times. And the root word that believe comes from shows up 292 times. And really, it is the crux of every passage in John's gospel that we might believe. Let's read together in verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. John says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written about in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing... You might have life in his name. So John wrote about Jesus' signs, as Deborah has taught us, that readers and hearers would understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But that's not all. In the middle of verse 31, you'll read these two words, and that. Two conjunctions and, and that, that pull together two different realities. The first is believing in Jesus that we can read. The second one, John says, that in believing, we may have life in his name. These are two very different realities. And it's John's goal that they would be brought together. More to this point, both of these ideas that we read contain the word may or might. Let's read this again in verse 31. But these are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now if we miss these words, then we miss John's point that these are not certain truths. The Greek language has um, a significant way of understanding these words, and it it is something called mood, and their mood is in what's called the subjunctive, which means if, then. There is a cause and an effect. So if this happens, then this can happen. The subjunctive mood expresses a chance and is hopeful. So John is putting before us a great, remarkable reality. Just because Jesus does miracles doesn't mean we will believe. And just because we believe in Jesus doesn't mean we will have eternal life. It's why John says may or might But Jesus has done these things to give us chance and hope indeed, if then. So it's with this understanding that we go to John chapter 2, where we'll be for the rest of the morning. If you turn with me there, it'll be on page 1222, John chapter 2. We'll pick up where Deborah left off last week, teaching us about Jesus cleansing the temple. You remember that Jesus arrived during the Passover and that there was much corruption happening in the temple where people were selling um, animals for sacrifice and were changing money before the good work of those who were teaching and preaching. And Jesus drove them out and said that um, they needed to cleanse the temple. So this is where we pick up. We'll read verses 23 through 25. John says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. So the first thing that I want to establish here in this passage is the understanding of believing. We just read this idea of believing in John chapter 20, right? So the the gospel of John is focused on this place of giving an opportunity for us and for them to believe in Jesus. In Greek, there is a word, pastuo, which means Believing. And it comes from a noun that means faith. The verb means to believe, to have faith in, or to trust. And this word is probably one of the most important theological and spiritual words in the Bible because it gives meaning and understanding to how we are either in fellowship with Jesus or we are disconnected from his presence. Believing. Now like most words, believe or believing can be distinguished or portrayed differently from one situation to the next, from one context to another. So we'll look at three different uses of this word believing to kind of understand what John is putting before us here. So the first, turn with me to Mark's Gospel chapter 11. Mark 11. If you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 1167. We'll begin reading in verse 22 of chapter 11. Mark writes... So Jesus answered to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in those things, he will be done. He says, excuse me, he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Now, misread or taken out of context, we could believe this passage that Jesus is saying, whatever we want, just pray for it and it will be happening. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's been teaching his disciples about what it means to be committed to a relationship with him and committed to his purpose. And in that place, if we are committed to God's purpose, we can believe that God will do what he says he'll do. Believe in this passage means that we have been persuaded of something. So we believe it, we trust it, we are confident in it. This believing includes the idea of hope and certain expectation. This believing comes from being in relationship with God and his purpose. Let's look at the next place to understand believe in Matthew chapter 8 back just a few pages, on page 1119, Matthew chapter 8. We'll read beginning in verse 5 about the centurion, the Roman officer who comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his servant, says now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way as you have believed. So let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So we have this great Roman um, this great Roman ruler in and, and the army and he comes to Jesus and he is confident of what Jesus can do to bring healing to his servant. He comes to Jesus and he says, I know that you can heal my servant. Would you please heal my servant? Jesus says, absolutely. Let's go to your house. And the centurion says, there is no need for that. There's no need for you to come under my roof. Who am I that you should come to my home? He says, we are similar. I am in a position of great authority, and when I ask someone to do something, they do it, and I am confident that you likewise can say to my servant to be healed, and it will be so. Jesus tells all the followers that are around him, he is revealing something great that, that when his father comes and welcomes all into his kingdom, that there will not just be Jew, but now Gentile. He says, I've not seen such faith in all of Israel like this man. He believes in what I can do. And so Jesus tells the centurion, as he gave that word, that it was done because he believed and had faith in what Jesus could do. Next, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. we will be on page 1356. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, page 1356. This is a very different context for this idea of believing. Paul is describing how believers are entrusted with the gospel. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So this is unique from the other places that we've just read that use this idea of believe or believing as something that that we do towards God. That we trust God and that we believe God for what we are confident he can do. But in this place, Paul uses the same word that God entrusts to us. God believes in us by giving us the gospel. I think that we often apply our own understandings for things into Scripture, which is about as good as we can do, that we can take what our mind thinks, what our experiences are, and as we read about believing, we we, we take what we know and what we think and we sew it into Scripture. But if we reduce this grand spiritual idea of believing to our feelings about the Dallas Cowboys' chances of making the playoffs, or our friends and family and their ability to be trusted or to trust us, then we will misunderstand and greatly miss out on God's design for believing in him. Turn back with me to John 2 now for our passage. We'll be on page 1222, John chapter 2. Let's read verse 23 again. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. So we should be asking ourselves, what is the problem here, right? Because if John's gospel is all focused on Jesus doing signs and John showing these signs to others that they may believe, what? What is happening that is coming up short for these who have seen the signs that Jesus has done and believed? Well, for one thing, we remember from John 20 where we began that part B of John's goal is that in believing, we and they might have eternal life. It isn't enough just to believe in Jesus because that might not produce anything. We know the the well-quoted passage in James chapter 2 where James rebukes followers of Jesus who claim to have faith but no actions to accompany it. James says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So scripture is clear that simply believing in Jesus and saying that much are not enough because even the demons do that. Certainly we would want to be separated from the demons and our relationship with Jesus. Now when we read this in John 2, we have no way of knowing what the substance of this crowd's belief was, right? We're not told any more about them, but Jesus does. And knowing that Jesus knows this much about them should put us on our heels who claim that he knows our heart. Maybe he saw that their belief was superficial. Maybe he saw that that it was more admiration of miracles or signs. Maybe he saw that that was merely mob mentality for these gathering around him. Maybe they were, like us, those who regularly attend church or those who listen to Christian radio or read Christian books or surround ourselves with good Christian people. Read verse 24 with me. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Now this is an arresting verse because there's few like it in scripture that seem to suggest that Jesus restrained himself from these people that were around him that believed in the signs that he did. I'm sure you've heard this phrase that God knows my heart. God knows my heart. Maybe you've even said this phrase or thought this phrase. I know that certainly I have said and thought and embraced this idea. But this phrase doesn't seem to work in a biblical way. The way that it's often, I think, meant popularly, I think most suggest that things in their heart are better than they appear outside in their actions and their words, right? Or to say, well, God knows my heart, so even though I'm really kind of not really with God or doing what God wants or in alignment with Scripture, maybe I'm kind of in rebellion to the things that he's shown, or maybe I'm doing things that that I'm really trying to justify to the Lord, he knows my heart. To suggest that despite all of what we think and do and, 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 and really embrace that somewhere in our heart, We are longing and pining for the ways of God. Look at a few verses with me about this. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 16. And the church's Bible will be on page 329. 1 Samuel 16. This is a verse that is talking about Samuel going to anoint David. The Lord has described this person that Saul will go and to anoint. And this verse is often used in a positive way to to say that God doesn't look at the things that we look at. God is not concerned with the things that we are. But it it reveals a dangerous reality. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord, excuse me, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So for all that we might convince ourselves or aim to convince others of, the Lord knows better what is deep. In the wells of our heart. Turn to Proverbs 21, if you're in the church's Bible, on page 749. Proverbs 21, page 749. The Proverbs are are always so dangerously introspective and reflective about one's one's true heart and intentions. In Proverbs 21, verse 2, it reads, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord weighs our hearts. It's as if the Lord doesn't just look at what is true in our hearts, but he, he takes our heart and he puts it on a scale, and he weighs it. Is it good or is it evil? Last scripture we'll look at here about the heart. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. On the church's Bible on page 1188, Luke chapter 6. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is teaching his disciples in a great crowd. And he says, says this in verse 45 of chapter 6. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Jesus kind of... Dissects this reality of the Lord knowing our heart in the sense that there's something deep within our heart that is good and unaffected by the evil that we might be doing. Instead, Jesus says what is consistent that comes out of us is consistent for what is inside our heart. Turn back with me to John chapter 2, page 1222. This passage in in John 2 is, is a bit unsettling because, in essence, it says that Jesus knows what is in every heart. Jesus is completely omniscient, right? He knows everything, and there are no secrets from him. It says in this passage that he knew all people, that he himself knew what was in every man. That he didn't need anyone to testify about man. So God doesn't need us to speak up for our friends. He doesn't need for us to defend them. He doesn't need for us to defend ourselves. God knows. Sometimes I would get in my truck to drive to work. And I would kind of just start in a conversation with the Lord. And telling the Lord all these things. To kind of lead up to what I would pray for or ask. The Lord began to. Share with me. I don't need to know all these things. I know these things. It was my way of kind of leading up to what I would want of him. And because he knows, he knows when someone believes in a way that's not really believing. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart presents to us this reality that some belief, some belief, believing for a particular situation, wanting God to work a miracle for what we need, wanting to trust for this just this one time, and then quickly reverting to our old ways, some belief is not the kind that leads to fellowship with Jesus and eternal life. And some belief is not saving belief. He knows the fullness of what is in our hearts, whether we do or not. Now the result of this is that for those in this passage, those who believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did, It says, Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now, what is significant about this phrase here? If you look, look here in verse 24, it says, because Jesus did not commit himself. Well, this word commit in Greek is the exact same word as the verse before it when it says many believed. The exact same word used very differently. Now the reason that we studied these different uses of believe a few minutes ago and that we saw those that that encountered mankind believing in God and what he could do and then we looked at the place in Thessalonians where Paul says that God entrusted his gospel to them was to see this reality that believing is a two-way street. Believing is a two-way street. Sometimes I think that we apply an entirely different set of relationship principles to the Lord than we expect with our spouses or our friends or our coworkers. In these physical relationships that we might have, we understand that faith, that trust, that believing is not mutually exclusive. Instead, this pistis, this believing, that scripture uses is reciprocal. It is to be reciprocated one for another. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't give to this group of people, right? He did. He did a miracle that they might believe. But Jesus recognized their hearts. Because their believing was lacking Jesus did not reciprocate by entrusting and committing back to them. This is a hard truth. Often we wonder why God's voice seems so faint. Why his direction seems so difficult. But if our believing is lacking... If our trusting and faith is lacking, God will not commit his great ways to us. Now many read this passage, I think, and they ask the question, were these men saved? It's always what we want to know, right? Where is the line for salvation? Where is the line that we can butt up against and hopefully not cross? That seems like a pretty silly question because what I think we should be asking is understanding this idea of a committed relationship. This is John's goal. To show us that the Lord does things that we will believe and trust in him. He does signs and wonders to direct us to his purpose. And as we are drawn into him, he commits himself to us. I believe this is the heart of the Father to commit his treasures to us. And I pray this would be our heart as well, to commit our treasure to him. Amen.
1: boundless grace, the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven, the King of kings calls me. Baby, oh, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my name.